Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, I'm Serge. I'm Chris. And this is Libre Lounge, the podcast about user freedom. And what we thought we would do this time is talk a little bit about free culture and remix culture and just have a casual conversation about all this good stuff. Uh, yep. Uh, so, um, so probably most people who listen to this podcast are familiar with free software, uh, the, the very free as in freedom definition of free software. Um, and, uh, and so that's probably already familiar territory. Um, it's interesting that the moment we mention free culture, it actually immediately becomes somewhat ambiguous because, uh, in some senses, there are kind of two different definitions of free culture, right? There's like what Lawrence Lessig put in his de- book of free culture, and then there's kind of a more strict definition in the, the definition of free cultural works that got published. Yeah. So um, let's, so you want to talk about the Lessig definition? Cause I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with that. Well, okay. So it's not really a Lessig definition. It's, uh, it's kind of more, if you read the book Free Culture, the book, and it kind of reflects on how Creative Commons has some what, what, what we would consider non-free licenses amongst its set. Um, the book kind of, what it's advocating is, uh, my friend Ashish Loria uh, uh, described it as, um, instead of being about this strict set of principles, it's about uh, a culture that, that lives on, right? So this is actually very similar to remix culture in some ways that it's more concerned about um the ability to keep copying and remixing things and stuff like that um without necessarily having this kind of core set of principles and kind of the hardcore way that um appeared in what was a later write-up called the definition of free cultural works which pretty much just mirrors uh, the free software definition as Stalin yeah, wrote it. So let's so let's let's talk about this um, in a in a historical time frame way and then in a definition way. So when we when we talk about free software, what we're really talking about, and we we talked about this in episode three, is the history of, of free software was that in the very beginning, copywriting your work. And keeping the source code proprietary just wasn't a thing. It was freely shared. And people in the we'll call the formal free culture movement talk about how art was very similar for a very long time. Most works of art aren't signed. It was the work that was important over the maker of that work. The work sort of spoke for itself. And many... Uh, artists in the past were sponsored. They had patrons that would pay f- uh, for their time and they would work uh, on commission, but a lot of their, uh, their work, uh, they, they just did through, um, again, their, their, their patrons rather than, uh, for commercial distribution. And this idea of copyright was, was didn't really exist until the last few hundred years. Um, and I'll link to Carl Fogel's talk about the history of copyright in the show notes because he gets, he gets very deep into this. Um, and then the way this gets extended to today is a uh, copyright in the last approximately a hundred years, starting in the United States, but now worldwide has 
become longer. It has become more strict than it ever has in, in the past. Uh, and I, I might have my numbers wrong, but in the U.S. early on, it was you had a seven-year copyright against works that were uh, only of a specific type. So they had to be maps and other kind of functional, what we'll call functional works, and we'll define that later. And that was only for seven years. And that was at a time when distribution really was was very limited. And now it's, I want to say, 100 I think it's 120 years past the author's death. So, uh, and that's retroactive, which means that, you know, at one time it was only 50 years, at one time it was 100 years, and then works that would be, that would go, um, that would have been in the public domain get extended. So, again, we'll link to this because I think this is an important background into the topic. And nowadays what we have are two, um, Form well, we'll say one formal group, which we'll call the free culture community, and they define themselves as a free culture community. And then we'll have, then we'll what I'll call either the creative. Well, actually, I think it's three. So we'll call the creative commons community, um, and I'll say that that's separate from the creative commons organization. Um, and then the remix community. And and I know Chris, who worked for Creative Commons, might disagree with me on this. So I, I'm I'm making I these distinctions. So so, but let me let me give you let me give my definitions, and then I'd love to hear how you how you uh, differentiate. So I'd say the free culture community has a strict definition of what is free culture and why free culture is important. And the idea behind the free culture movement is basically that restrictions on culture have uh, an impact and that uh, works need to be uh, free for the purpose of cultural evolution and access in the same way that software and all that should be free. And we can talk about the, that there are those in the free software movement who don't agree or who have a different uh, idea, but that's the idea of the free culture movement. I would say the creative commons, you know, putting that in air quotes, community are people that think that, Work should be freely distributed, but the license that gets used is something that the artist will have um, a lot more control over. And that's why the term creative commons itself is a little bit deceptive. When someone says, oh, I've had this under a, a creative commons license. Well, there's no such thing as one creative commons license. Creative commons is a series of licenses, some of which are free culture and some of which are not free culture. Wait, so, uh, so wait, yeah. that's true. I, I do. I'm going to let you, mm -hmm. I'm going to let you finish, but mm -hmm. I just want to interject that most of the people I know at creative commons also uh, have been uncomfortable with the kind of anti-pattern that is sadly common of, you know, Oh, this is released under, the creative, creative or a right. creative commons license. Well, the, what they'll, well, they'll just say this is released under the yeah the, the under well they'll just say under creative commons, right? This right. is released under creative commons, and that that doesn't actually tell you anything about the terms upon which it's it can be given or reused. It only says that the creator of the license itself was this organization called Creative Commons, um, and then you have and I would say those people are approaching free culture, but they may they may not agree or they may not. Um, for whatever reason, want to make their work free culture. They may not be aware of the distinctions. Um, and then you have what I'm going to call remix culture. Um, and that's just people who are using stuff from various sources and they're not thinking about licenses and they're not concerned about licenses. And this is um, another way of putting this might be YouTube culture, 
right? People that are just taking various clips and putting them together. Um, maybe they're making new works. Maybe they're putting music on top of something and, and making a cultural mishmash, or maybe they're making a review or something else, but they're, they're not worried at all about the licensing. They're just mixing and, and, remixing right so i know you don't agree with my my three groups here so why don't you jump in chris well i don't agree with the middle one uh i don't agree with it because i think that um i think that you're identifying a problem there that i agree is true but i so my experience with what i would call the creative commons using community right the people the set of people who use the licenses that creative commons publish is that it's a gradient of people uh, a gradient of understanding of what those are, right? And uh, there have been efforts to try to make it better. You know, the Creative Commons license chooser has tried to help people understand that distinction without, you know, going too much into the detail. And there are some things I even think that Creative Commons has done right about the licensing, but I, I, I don't completely agree that it's its own cultural or distinct group. I do agree with the criticism that there are some people using Creative Commons licenses that don't understand uh, the distinctions, but I, I, but to to jump out further, I do agree with your a distinction between the strict definition of free cultural works, um, which uh, there is the free, um, there is the definition, uh, the free cultural works definition, which is pretty much like the free software definition. Which also, I don't think we've ever actually said what the free software definition is on this show. So. Um, very broadly, the idea of the free the free software fund definition has uh, this list of four freedoms, which is freedom to run a program, freedom to study how the program works, um, freedom to redistribute copies, and freedom to redistribute copies of modified versions. So, a much simpler version of that um, we could say is you know uh, the right to uh, um, the right to uh, view copy, work. modify, yeah. and distribute. Right. Well, I would actually say and to view, right? And, right, and, and this this becomes that, that idea of view, I think, well, I don't know when I jump down this rabbit hole, but um, jumps into this issue of DRM and file formats and other things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, the, so, there, so the free culture definition um, uh, does pretty much mirror the free software definition, and that's a bit more of a strict uh, definition and the other one, but I, I, it, but what's interesting to me is that even kind of from the beginning of kind of this distinct thing of free culture, there was kind of a, some of the early, you know, kind of minds behind it. Um, some of them were more interested in what we'd now call remix culture than I think they were interested in kind of the strict definition version of free software. And, and part of that might, who are you, who are you thinking about in particular? I'm well, I, I, I think that, uh, and and maybe he'd say I'm wrong, but I, I think that Lessig actually is a pretty good example of that. I think that Lessig, uh, I, so, and I think that the fact that Creative Commons includes two or more, uh, um, but at least two today, uh, non-free licenses, right? So the Creative Commons does include attribution. It does include attribution, share alike. Um, wait, is it three? I always get confused. So there's, there's basically two clauses that are non-free. And so the two clauses Commons. that are non, so, so let's just, let's step back. Right. So Creative Commons is a series of licenses, as you say, it's a gradient of licenses in which an artist can choose what terms they want to be in their license. And it's kind of like um, 
like a, like ordering a, a coffee at a, an expensive coffee shop, right? So you say, well, I want this, and I want you to change the milk to soy milk, and I want a sprinkle of cinnamon, well, right? Well, sort of, because they actually do they actually do just bake into just a few licenses, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Well, they the choosing them. process, there's a tool that lets you choose it via those properties. Right. And then they kind of, but, but yeah, but there's kind of enough. this abstract set of core properties. One of them is attribution, which used to be optional and now is just all of the Creative Commons licenses, except for CC0, which so is So let's say it's not all of them, right? So, so <laughs> but basically all of them uh, uh, require attribution. Um, CC0 is for kind of a public domain thing, uh, and that's its own, uh, uh, topic. But the, of the, of the composable components, attribution is just by default in the 3.0 and 4.0 licenses baked in. And, uh, um, the other options that you can select are share alike, which is basically copyleft. Um, and, uh, with, without well, a, a source copyleft requirement. basically just requiring that you, that if you make a modified version, that you have to give that version under the same terms. So if I take a book that you wrote and maybe I add a chapter, I can't say, oh, well, this is a whole new edition. This isn't Chris's book. This is my right, book. Right. And so I have, yeah. And I, I can't yeah, just so lock it's, it away. It's, it's, it's copyleft for, for creative works. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, um, but it doesn't require source. Um, and, right. uh, and well, wait, before we get into that, let's get to the last two. There's also the non-commercial one, which is said that the, the work can't be used for um, commercial purposes, which is very vague. And, you know, uh, the, the whole topic about what does non-commercial mean is, is probably an episode of its own. Uh, and, uh, um, and then there's a no derivatives license and the, or no derivatives clause. And those last two are non-free, right? You right. can't, they don't fit under the free software definition and they don't fit under the free culture definition. Um, but they are provided by Creative Commons, right? So, uh, so and, and I think that gets confusing because there's a lot of there's a lot of websites out there where you can say, oh, I can download. Um, they'll say, um, you know, Free Music Archive, for example, um, which is unfortunately shutting down. But they had a lot of works on there that were not free from a free culture definition standpoint. They were free, as in, hey, I can make a copy of this music and give it to you, which is a huge you know, that's already great. But what I can't do, for example, with a non-commercial license is I can't say, hey, Chris, I, I made you this remix uh, or I made, I made you this USB key full of wonderful music. Um, but uh, can you give me a dollar because the USB key cost me a dollar? Right. That's right. a commercial and, transaction. And then it also gets so that seems to be an incentive towards being able to um, you know, let's re-license it so that you can pay for that right, but it's very difficult to compose that because once you have multiple entities remixed into the same non-commercial thing, it actually becomes very hard to figure out who to pay. And non, um, yeah, and a non no derivative just means, hey, I can't change the work. I, I it's actually kind of core to this idea of of you know free software and free culture. Of this idea is, hey, the idea is that you can build upon it. Well. Uh, a non-derivative work says, well, you can't, you, you just right. can't build upon this. So, so non-commercial, non, no derivative, non-free. Uh, Everything else is free. Everything, Everything else, is, else free. is free. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the, but I think we, to continue framing it, mm -hmm. um, I think part of the reason why, um, what's interesting is that, um, 
that that kind of there the I think the free culture community has in general not had as kind of hard let's say a, as hardcore of a base as a free software community has uh and I and in fact even most free culture and free software people that I know can uh even the ones who are like what we might call free software vegans and that they don't even run any blo- binary blobs on their computer or anything like that a lot of them are like ooh I like I like Star Trek or something like that. That's like, you know, from a cultural standpoint, like if we were looking at the same terms, like that's definitely non-free. Yeah, I, I would say and, that's true. But it's, it's it's also, I mean, two things. One is it's a matter of availability, right? In the sense of, uh, you know, if you live in the world, the modern world, you know, you're exposed to books, you're exposed to music and, and television and movies. And, the vast, vast majority of the works you're going to encounter are going to be non-free, right? So, so it's 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 hard to say. Well, I I don't like anything other than free works. I won't I won't read anything other than free works. That's just not realistic in today's society. I mean, I would you could make an argument, and I'm not saying this is a perfect analogy that you know you you encounter even if you're a free software vegan, maybe on your maybe on your own computer, you're not using. Um, non-free software, but of course, you know, if, if you use, um, a service on the internet, if you drive a car, you know, you know, you're going to be interacting with proprietary software, but I, but I don't want to go too far down that, down that rabbit hole. I agree with you that, that free software people tend to be more, uh, or sorry, free culture people, sorry, say it differently. Free culture people tend to be more relaxed about the idea of of where they're going to borrow their ideas from well so i also want to so what i'm trying to do here is is to frame uh that there may be a reason for this that's um you've touched on one possible reason which is that it's harder to be a free culture vegan in some ways in that you know we're immersed in the culture that we walk around with and, and you know it's it's actually just very Computer software is relatively new, and you have a lot um, compared to the amount of time that copyright has existed on cultural words. And it's it's a much easier base to start being hardcore about it, I guess. And but I have to say the other thing is is that um, despite a lot of the free cultural ideas coming out of the free software movement, leadership in free software early on, uh, um, one famous leader in particular did not think that free culture was as important. Right. So, of course, you're referencing Richard Stallman, who who made this interesting distinction that I think many of us in both in both camps and both movements. And we should we should talk about where both of us come from in this world. Um, But Richard Stallman talked about this distinction in his mind between what he called functional works and non-functional works. And so he said that things like software were functional works. They served a purpose. And he said that. Hardware designs were functional works, and uh, I believe he he actually specifically referenced uh, railroad timetables as functional works. Um, And I guess he would also say that maps are functional works, although he didn't explicitly talk about maps. Um, I would say that maps are functional works. And then and then on the the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, you might have rock and roll music. Well, rock and roll music, for the most part, doesn't have a function. It doesn't it it, it only serves to please the listener to express a feeling, which is an important thing in my mind, a very important thing. But it doesn't it doesn't 
have a job in air quotes in the same way. Um, I would say that, that there's plenty of in between things, um, textbooks, for example, or any kind of t- material that's trying to teach is going to have a purpose, but is also going to have, uh, some character in it that's, that's going to be conveyed to, to, to the student. Um, yeah, I mean, so this distinction also gets really weird when you start thinking about the fact that uh, artists are trying to generally make state, even creative expressions are generally have under the hood some sort of attempt to make a functional impact upon how society works, or at yeah, least the most interesting right. ones do, I think. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, and, and and I think that's the idea behind the free culture movements, you know, raison d'etre is that they and I would put myself in that camp, don't see uh, this distinction between cultural and non, sorry, functional and non-functional works as so clear cut. And even if it was clear cut, even if we say, well, there is such a distinction between, um, wow, I've got that. I don't know if anyone can hear my, the siren that's going on in the background. I apologize. Um, But even if people do make that distinction, it's irrelevant because cultural works can have a major impact on our society. And so they are therefore important, whatever lines you want to draw, they're important. So I I do want to take one step back here and say that, you know, Chris, you worked for Creative Commons. You worked for the organization Creative Commons. And I volunteered and was a fellow at Question Copyright. And Question Copyright is absolutely a free culture promoting uh, organization and question copyright. I'm sorry. And um, Creative Commons, I guess, takes a more nuanced view. Well, Creative Commons, uh, because of its history, I think tends to uh, accommodate uh, all ends of what I, um, I of that kind of spectrum of, uh, um, I guess we'll say, kind of hardcoreness about. Uh, um, about you know the freeism freedomness of cultural works right uh and uh the as an institution creative commons is kind of a steward for the things that it supports and sometimes uh and the and the licenses that it's put together and sometimes dabbles in that space of the philosophy but i actually can't speak to the amount that it dabbles anymore now that i don't work there yeah, uh, but, I guess I think but, about. All right, sorry, go on. Well, I mean, so I will say that you know that that creative at Creative Commons. So one of the things I did work on was the license chooser, and actually I have not looked at it in some time. But we did take the effort to make sure that when you selected a license from the license chooser, that it would give you the free cultural works definition badge if it was one of the free licenses and not otherwise. And that was like so. So there was some work to try to bridge. The two uh, worlds, things in yeah. that way but but you know but but again yeah the institution uh i tend to think of as uh largely a steward of the spectrum that the licenses provide including the non-free side of that spectrum so this is going to be an imperfect analogy but i i thought of creative commons the organization again not not uh, the licenses but the, the organization is kind of like the sierra club you guys were the 800 pound gorilla in the free free culture space right in the same way the sierra club is this 800 pound gorilla in the environmental space and we were kind of like friends of the earth like we were the weird radicals um and we didn't just talk about um 
copyright in terms of, well, we want things to be free. We, we explored what that meant. And so, for example, um, I know that there were people in, in QCO, questioncopyright.org. Sorry, I should actually say the organization's name was questioncopyright.org officially, um, even though I often just call it question copyright. So uh, that, that believed that we really wanted attribution, and there is no attribution clause in copyright as it is today, not strong attribution. Um, but I believe, for example, and, and I would, I don't want to speak for anyone else. So I'll say, I believe that that, that was a, a cause that many of us, or I mean, there was like three people that, that the organization believed in, um, even though it, it, it was outside of the spectrum of more or less copyright. We believe that copyright needs to be more discussed and needs to be more, um, debated. And I guess it was, it was an organization dedicated to the debate of copyright, although we had a number of projects that were designed to encourage more free work. Right. Um, so, so, um, I, so if we're getting into, so we got into kind of the free culture side of things to some degree. Um, uh, well, I guess the one thing that we didn't talk about was the public domain, right? So the public domain it exists both in free software and free culture, and that's basically just a space of things that are not copyrighted. Right. So copyright in the past expired. It only had a limited time frame. And in fact, that's in the U.S. Constitution required that it be a limited time frame. And so once works are outside of their time, uh, once they sort of expire, they ex they expire into this realm called public domain. And it just means everybody can use it for anything. And they don't have to attribute it. They don't have to license it. It's just it's available to everyone. And it it's honestly uh, it's where a lot of if you if you want to look at, for example, Disney, they make a ton of money on um, public domain works. Um, you know, a lot of their stories come from things from the 1800s. They're, I'm sorry, their films come from stories from the 1800s and their the works are no longer in copyright. And so they can use them. Uh, and, and, and public domain is great. Um, I, I do. I think we both make a distinction between "quote unquote" true public domain, which is this legal status, and then what Creative Commons or free software people would say public domain. And what what they mean is essentially public domain. So well, yeah. You well, want to talk so, about that? Yeah. So Creative Commons actually has a formal mechanism for this. Um, so what many people also may not realize is that if it's public domain in the U.S., that does not mean it's a public domain everywhere else. Uh, some countries also don't even have a formal concept of a public domain in the way that the U.S. does. Uh, and uh, and also, interestingly, some things like uh, the U.S. federal government is required to put um, all of the things that it produces in the U.S. public domain. However. Um, that applies to U.S. citizens, but it doesn't actually necessarily apply internationally. And I believe the U.S. government actually sells, um, uh, actually uses its copyright overseas and actually sells it um, just in a way that does not happen to its own citizens at home. Um, so we can't assume because something's in the public domain here, even though we're, we tend to be kind of loose about it in free software, if somebody says, oh, this is in the public domain, we're kind of like, yeah, whatever. Okay, cool. We'll just pull it in and, and act as if it's this, uh, you know, no rights reserved type situation. Uh, but there is a license that Creative Commons put out. Well, it's 
So, or we should say a copyright waiver. Um, so CC0 is uh, basically um, tries to put your stuff in the public domain if it can. And if there's no applicable public domain, it has a very lightweight license fallback. Uh, uh, and so you can use that. Now, an interesting episode of its own is, that sounds really great. I should use this for software. And the story of us trying to get that to happen and uh, it kind of exploding in our faces uh, due to an interesting clause in there. But I don't know if that's uh, something we should get into right now. Yeah, let's, talk, let's stick on free culture for now and we can, we can always revisit. I think these are, these are topics we can go into a lot of depth on in the future. Yep. Right, so, we, so we've talked about... Um, so we've, we've, we've talked about the, the definitions here, and we've talked a little bit about the difference between, let's say, and again, I know you don't like my distinction, right, between the free culture people and the uh, creative commons people. And I know, again, you don't love that distinction. But could, let's, could, hmm? we make, could we make a uh, – so I guess let me, let me try to pin down what your distinction is. Mm-hmm. Uh, your distinction is between – um free culture people and people who consider nc and nd to be acceptable yeah i I would say that i would say that that it's one of two things so um i would say that the majority of people who are into free software for example um and i say into i mean using and developing and and that would classify themselves as free software developers i'm going to talk specifically about software We'll look at we'll look at a piece of software and consider its license as a feature. So if I see a piece of software that looks really good and I see that it's GPL'd, I'm like, yeah, that's that's even better now that it's GPL'd. Um, and there's a and there's a subset of software developers who are producing free software who who don't look at it that way. They're they they're just like whatever, get me a license that works. And so they'll, they might use the MIT license or they might use um, the Apache license or something like that. Cause they're not, they don't look at it. They're, they're not, they're not subscribing necessarily to the, to the ideology of the free software movement. And I think that there are a lot of artists out there who will, will produce some work and then they will go to the license chooser on the creative commons website. And they will read something that says no create no no uh, commercial use, and the image in their mind is that someone is going to make a CD. I'm going to pretend they're a musician, right? So they're going somebody's going to make a CD or put it on iTunes. There's going to be billions of downloads, and they're not going to see a penny. And so in the in that moment, they feel exploited, right? They go, why don't I get? Why can't I get some piece of that pie, right? Yeah. And and then they feel cheated. And they click. I don't want any commercial use. Or right. and, so, and, and that's. Well, I want to get to the ND part a little bit. And I think that there's a similar idea of some of non-derivatives, right? This non-derivative idea. And they'll say, well, wait, does that mean somebody could just change some of my words and then claim it's theirs, right? And so, but but they still want to do something. They want to make it better. They want to make it. They want to make it so that you and I can give each other their music. But they're not subscribed to their whole ideology, and I think that's the distinction. It's not. It's not so much that that they believe that C, that that ND and NC are are good, so much as that they're not subscribing to the whole ideology, and they're not sitting around thinking about it like we do. 
Right. So I kind of think of that as Remix Culture Volume 1, and then there's a Remix Culture Volume 2, which is what uh, YouTube has kind of enabled in some ways, or or in not in necessarily a positive way in my definition of enabled. But uh, we'll get to that in a second. But I, I think I do agree with you. And so I think you're also kind of lobbying or lobbying uh, a, a slight criticism towards the Creative Commons license chooser, which I would agree with, actually which is that the fact that you may or may not get a badge after the fact that says that this is a free cultural work is not um, guiding users enough because they might select that non-commercial and no derivative stuff and not really understand the consequences of how it affects the commons. Yeah, or even what what commercial use is. So I, I have encountered people who, you know, they are totally okay with, you know, for example, a nonprofit, you know, selling CDs and just making a little bit of money. They're, they're, for a lot of them, it's about scale and it's about it's about um, feeling exploited. And there are other. We're not just selling CDs. That maybe we should say, you know, maybe the nonprofit has a podcast and they put the music at the front of the episode. Yeah, that's right. So, for example, in our podcast, we we don't use any non-commercial music. Even though, even though there's some great stuff out there, because you did donate to the artist, uh, right? But I'm saying, but 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 we don't put anything on this podcast because there is a possibility that we, for example, um, and we don't. I don't think we do this now. But if if for if for example, we decided to have an advertisement um, on the website, and we use the NC license. It's my understanding that that would then be a commercial work on our part, and we could not. We and we we would be in a tricky situation. I won't oh, say right. we'll be violating. I'll say it's a tricky situation. Uh, I was just, by the way, my my interjection there may have been confusing. I was just saying, you know, uh, that I mean, kind of in support of just because there's not a non-commercial thing on the thing that we chose doesn't mean that we're not willing to support the artist but i mean you could also say so it gets even fuzzier than that right we have the um you know you can donate to my uh patreon thing at the end of the episode it does that make this a commercial podcast right oh good question right that's an excellent question so like it's not just whether or not we put an advertisement in there like that feels a little bit more direct to me right it's even something like are you willing to donate right and and it's and there is a creative commons so creative commons did do a survey since this is such a uh, tricky issue, uh, I guess I should find it and link it so that it can be in the show notes. But um, Creative Commons did do a survey of what people's understanding of non-commercial was. And that helped give some sense of kind of the spectrum of things that people understood. But but people do not necessarily understand things the same way, right? The dis- discussion about does a nonprofit put, putting something in their end-of-the-year donation drive thing count as non-commercial or not versus a corporation doing it um is kind of unclear or you know even uh um you know like or or anything along those lines right like what about the non-profit actually just using it as a photo that they put up on their website if it the wall street journal did it then you'd probably be like that's commercial use but if there was just a blog post where you know that the non-profit was using is that commercial use well it's unclear, right? And there is no strict, and the Creative Commons licenses specifically, or the Creative Commons licenses using NC specifically do not flesh that out for you. Um, and uh, um, and so that's, 
a space that I think people do not realize how complicated it is. So do we want to? So so here's a, a little fork in the road. Do we want to talk about um, this? What you call remix culture, volume two, um, or do we want to talk about something that that QCO talk did to try to address this commercial non commercial distinction problem? Uh, uh, let's do. Uh, um, I, I'm happy to hear. I, I I don't have a strong preference, so you All right, go so with let's, direction. So let's so let's let's stick on to this and talk a little bit about QCO's idea, which. I would say I don't think it. I don't think it really was um, a hugely successful project, but it was a really neat idea. So QCO's position was that the the purpose of most donations, uh, or sorry, the purpose of most purchases of an artist's work was to support the artist. That the reason that I buy a CD or go to Amazon or iTunes to download some music is that I want to support the artist. And it's not that I couldn't get the music for free, but because I probably can. Right. And so therefore the thing that we should be optimizing for is supporting the artist and not all this other stuff. We don't need copyright to support the artist. And, and I would say that, that Patreon actually, uh, which didn't exist when this project with the project I'm about to mention is launched has has actually helped with that. It's it's separated out paying an artist for the stuff that they create. But the idea that create uh, that uh, QCO had was something that they called uh, the the creator mark, and uh, the creator mark was this image that you could put on a um, on a physical medium or a website, and it would say Creative Mark Forty. Or Creative Mark 25, and what the, that number represented was that that was the percentage of revenue that would come in and then be given to the artist. So, if you can imagine, uh, I sell a CD, or I'm getting talking about CDs a lot here, but I sell a CD or a download for a dollar. Well, 25 cents of that dollar will go directly to the artist. Um, and maybe it'll be 90%, maybe it'll be 100%. Uh, and they also had a generic mark that would just be some percentage would go. And then the idea was that the artist would, on their social media, say, hey, you should get it from the one that gives me the highest percentage, right? You should give it to me. You should go and, and get this from the guy that, the guy or gal or whoever that, that gives me 90% rather than the guy who gives me 25% or maybe the, 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 the organization that gives me nothing. So that that was the idea of the creator mark, and the and the reason, and and then they put that mark in trademark, so that you had to be sort of certified to use it. And again, the project didn't take off, but it was a really neat neat idea um, for a way of, around this problem of well, what is a you know how do we support this artist without. Need, without needing to feed into the the idea of monopoly and restriction, which is the core of copyright, the idea of copyright is that only certain people can produce the work or, and and distribute that work. And in some sense, that's kind of a counterpoint to the anxiety that you were describing that people hit, where they might choose NC in that moment because they feel they're worried about being ripped off. Right. Exactly. It was it was created it was created specifically to allow artists to to have that connection with their 
um, with their with their fans, and for fans to know what to look for. So if I'm a, so if I'm buying something that's related to an artist's work, I'm going to buy the thing with the highest um, creator mark, right? Because it, it, it's it's almost like a mark of purity when I'm when I'm buying a product, right? I'm going to go, oh well, this one is better than that one because the number is higher. Um, and, and it kind of reminds me in the, in the non-free space of, of Humble Bundle, um, which is a website. Well, actually, that was originally had uh, – there was originally free software released in the Humble Bundle, and then they dropped that. In oh, interesting. Versions. I didn't know that. All right, so Humble Bundle is a website where you can download um, various types of content, so books and video games and things. And many times you can name the price that you want to pay. And then you can also, I think in some cases, adjust how much overhead they take versus the, the artist. So how, how much, how much humble bundle itself gets versus, versus the, the creator of the work, um, getting. So, so it was kind of like that, but instead of, so the, the problem with humble bundle and is, well, A, they, they support non-free things. Um, and whereas the creative mark would only be used for free culture works, I believe, um, uh, I might be wrong, but I believe that's the case. And um, with Humble Bundle, you can only do it through Humble Bundle. The idea here was that if I if I had this creator mark, I could go to any vendor, right? Whether it be a big online retailer or a sh- store, I would know what to look for. It would be something on the on the website or on the the package that I could look for. And if someone violated that, they could be sued, right? Because it's a trademarked right. image. You can't just use it. Um, so, so mm-hmm. I think a thing that you're highlighting here is, so I'm going to bring up another proprietary service that I don't use, but many of my friends do, um, and actually bring it up in the context of, so another thing that, um, in this category, and a very interesting overlap of category, interesting in many regards between free software and free culture is video games, because they both require culture, uh, and software in order to work, right? Um, and, uh, for a long time, actually, uh, Richard Stallman, I think, took the position that video games in general were really just not something to worry about, uh, too much about as in terms of proprietary software. I, I don't have a link to back this up, but I'm pretty sure, um, he, he pretty much was just very hand wavy at that time. Like, well, you know, even the software was like, not really that big of a deal. And, and, uh, one of the, so I don't know how he's going to feel about me kind of quoting this exchange on here, but I had an exchange with Bradley Kuhn, who at one point also, you know, took a position about, well, games really don't matter that much and agreed with RMS that, you know, they're not really a functional work. It's not a big deal, blah, blah, blah. And I, and, and he changed his mind partly because we had a conversation where I said, Steam, uh, which is a proprietary game delivery service that uses DRM. And at that time, Steam was not available on GNU Linux. And I said, Steam is the way that DRM will come to GNU Linux, and the users will re- rejoice about the arrival of DRM. And I think that changed his mind. And that turned out to be true. Uh, like, a lot of people are like, Steam does DRM right, right? And you hear that people say the same thing about Netflix. And um, And one of the things that strikes me about that is, A, it's very upsetting to hear people say, you know, doing DRM right. But uh, it does tie in, most of the people that I know who do use Steam would be happy to pay for things if it was free and open source software. And in fact, 
the DRM is not an inhibitor for them. They are people who could very well download things from a peer-to-peer service, a, um, you know, what the proprietary software com- uh, community might call a pirated version of the software, right? They are perfectly capable of doing that. But the reason that they're paying for it is not out of legal fear or an inability to do it, but because they think, oh, well, this is a great way to be able to pay for games so that games can keep coming down the pipeline for me. Right, and when you say pay for, what you really mean is it's it's a means of funding the creation of... Uh, it's, it's a means of supporting the the artist. And when I say artist, it doesn't necessarily mean a single artist. It could mean a it could mean a game studio, right? But right. Uh, but it means funding them for the work that they've put into it and funding their future work. Right. And so this this thing about users celebrating the arrival of DRM on GNU Linux also speaks to another thing to me about how free software and free culture are deeply interrelated, which is that most of the places where free software has really been kind of screwed over, over and over again, is actually has to do with things that the media industry is doing, right? Like, uh, you know, whether it's patents on MP3s, or it's DRM on watching video and uh, and audio um, and all sorts of things like that. Or, you know, even uh, the proprietary drivers for that are required to play many 3D games. Almost always when it's a point, uh, with one exception being also the phone industry uh, being the other place where we tend to have a lot of trouble. Uh, though, you know, in general, it actually ends up being the places where um, what RMS might call non-functional works actually interact with our software. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't have much. I don't have much to say. I, I agree. I agree with you. I think it's. I think that we we in the free software and free culture community kind of missed the boat here. We we assumed that the that the proprietary world would act in a certain way, which was that they would continue to um, do what they were doing and what they were doing in the, the nineties and two thousands were just cracking down. Right. So I remember you know, hearing stories about, Oh, this, this grandmother was sued by, um, I believe it was the recording industry of America for some unstated amount of money uh, because her grandchild had downloaded some music or something. And what they did instead was to start fixing the bugs in their software and make it feel they well they did two things so they fixed the bugs in the software so it so when it broke it didn't it wasn't as intrusive and then they went ahead and normalized it culturally so uh, and you give the example of Netflix right so streaming services are interesting because it has changed our idea of what having a video library is. Um, I remember, you know, people would have lots of movies and, and they'd have them on VHS or if they were uh, maybe Laserdisc and then DVD. And now people don't have those because they're actually less convenient than just going to a button and pressing a button and, and renting a movie or having it on a streaming service. 
So I, I agree. And, and I think what we as a community need to do as a free, free software and free culture community is to start looking at the features that these companies have provided and make something equivalent. And we, and we did that, you know, when we, when we look at things like, um, you know, Debian and the program aptget, right? And then you think about something like Steam or iTunes, you know, the, the iTunes marketplace or the Apple market or whatever it's called. The, the, and then the, 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 I think if they call it the store and then the, the Android marketplace or whatever they're called, right? But we started that. And one of the things that they do really well is synchronization, right? So if you've got programs on one system, uh, you know, on one phone, it synchronizes to all your phones. Or if you've got music that you've downloaded on one platform, it synchronizes to all the platforms. And we, we've, we've not been keeping up with, with them and we haven't with, with these programs and we haven't been keeping up with the cultural changes in the same way. And that's, and that's, a uh, that's on us as a community. Oh, well, and another thing. And so this comes to both free software and free culture. So I, a, I agree with you that like the rise of um, streaming services and app stores was preceded by package managers in the free software space in many ways. Um, I agree with that. But another thing that they do well that we don't do well is making it easy to compensate uh developers and artists right um nobody in the free so despite the english confusion over the term free anybody you talk to who is a you know free as in libre although that acronym ends up as fail so let's not use that uh but uh um you know who is free as in freedom type person will say well actually i'm a-okay with uh distributing uh, free software, uh, and you know, and for by paying for it, or even just you know voluntarily paying for it, but we don't make it easy to do that, right? Our even our app store, our equivalent of app stores today, are not really built in such a way that encourage compensation. And I guess part of that might be that once you end up involving money, sometimes it can actually make things a little bit complicated uh, for your community deciding who gets that money and stuff like that. But I mean, I think part of it is just that we haven't really prioritized that type of thing. And when we don't prioritize that type of thing, it means somebody else ends up getting it. I mean, so to, uh, so one thing, one way that this became very clear to me was that uh, about a decade ago, before steam got really huge, when it was just starting out, uh, I ran a, um, very unsuccessful Blender user group in Chicago. It met for a total of one meeting. Uh, and in that one meeting, um, a, another Blender developer I knew and somebody I didn't know showed up. And what they mostly talked about was they were both game developers and they mostly talked about, hey, we're indie game developers and finally we have a way to be able to make money and it's all thanks to this proprietary company that's distributing things via steam and everyone i had talked to at that moment uh because i guess i'm so insular had been people who had felt as if independent people had felt abhorrent towards the ideas of um proprietary distribution services and I kind of felt that way being in the free software and free culture community where it felt very indie 
to be uh, against those type of things. And then I realized that that wasn't necessarily the case with these people, two people I was sitting down with. And I don't know that, I mean, I kind of feel like that starts to bleed into the remix culture 2.0, but I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think we, we have done uh, a poor job of, of reaching out and explaining. Um, I think this is all also about entrepreneurship and, and we, we haven't offered a lot of these people a path to um to be paid and so they've they've had to go another way i think i think a lot of these people are if you ask them they would say well i'm an open source supporter and you go well that's great and they go well but not not their own work right or they might contribute if, if they're if they're really good guys um and i say guys and could be gals or or non-binary or whatever but um if they're really good people, they might say, well, I did write this library that's tangential or it's used in my program, but, I, but I'm not going to release the whole thing. I'm going to release a piece that's not critical to my, to my, right. to my program. But, but I, I do think we should uh, talk a little bit about remix culture and, and, uh, because, I, because, it's an important, because it's an important part of this narrative. And then maybe if our audience wants to you know, comment and we can, we can go in a, a deeper dive later. Right. So, right. um, so what I'm going to call remix culture or, and I, I don't love the idea of calling it YouTube culture because it's not just YouTube, but it's, but YouTube is, has become synonymous with this. And it's kind of the same way. That, well, and it, it preceded, it preceded YouTube, but YouTube has changed the space to some degree. Right. Yeah. So, let's so talk I'd, I'd count, I count the, like the participatory, uh, not the participatory, the, the open movie, uh, um, like, uh, or maybe it was participatory video, like the open movie movement was kind of in the same category where it was more about access to being able to produce movies than it was actually that much concern about their licensing and things like that. Fair enough. And their ability to share it and remix it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's talk about what it is. Let's, let's define it, for at least for ourselves. Uh, so you have people who are just making they're making combinations of work so it, it might it might just be something as simple as you take a, one movie or you know one tv show and put music behind it that's something else or maybe it's a whole movie and you put music behind it or maybe they're combining works and making something completely new or um you know putting stringing clips together and that's always been part of culture right that's always been part of our cultural heritage and that's the idea in free culture but they're not concerned with the licensing uh, and, and this remix culture people are just doing the stuff and as far as they're concerned they're quote-unquote getting away with it and there was a period of time and this is i think what's going to come where we're talking about youtube specifically and why you think youtube is so important in in this movement is for a long time uh youtubers would get shut down so hey you're using this music uh well this company claims to own this music so we're taking this away and that did re lead to like user outrage oh yeah right? and including by the way i should mention including question copyright where we made our own videos and they had notices from of, of music violations uh, by various parties. And when that would happen, uh, YouTube had this procedure where we would have to, we'd have to argue that they were wrong. And it was, it was a very opaque process. Um, 
and I don't even remember what ended up happening because we produced our own music for our for our videos, and yet there was no way to stop the copyright claims over our over over our work. But what and and this copyright claims thing is important because in the beginning it was well if a claim is put on your work you'll they'll shut it down and then it'll just be off and it'll be gone. But then YouTube had this very smart idea, which was that they said, well, no, uh, we won't have to shut it down. We'll just automatically monetize it. And what they mean is we'll put ads around it or before it and after it and around it. And then we will give part of the revenue to the entity that claims copyright over the work. So if you put music behind your home movies, you can keep the video, but the at least in the ideal world, the music company would get some amount of money every time someone watches your video. And in many cases also as an additional carrot towards, you know, this scenario, the person producing the remix version might get paid as well. Yeah, so it's kind of this idea of well, everyone's getting paid, everyone's getting money. So let's let's everyone be happy and and in some ways it's not a terrible compromise if it works perfectly. <laughs> right? So if it works perfectly then you could say well okay I'm I'm getting to keep my creative expression up if I'm a content producer I'm getting to keep my creative expression up I don't have to take it down uh, some percentage is going to be give, taken from me, but that's okay because that saves me the work of having to license the music myself, which may be either uh, impossible or just impractical because the the procedure for licensing music and uh, is 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 cumbersome. Um, so YouTube is sort of taking all taking care of all that for me. But what it has done is it has two problems. So the first is that it doesn't work. As I just mentioned, Creative Commons, sorry, questioncopyright.org uh, would get these notices, and we would get these notices um, not infrequently. And we would and, have to. And Blender, the Blender Institute had it happen recently as well, which actually pushed them to experimenting with PeerTube, which is a federated and peer to peer delivery uh, um, alternative to YouTube. Yeah, so it doesn't work. Or it doesn't, it doesn't work perfectly. Um, and that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that by sort of washing all this away with, well, we're all, we're all getting paid. You ignore the core issue of, um, of license and the copyright. You know, you, you basically make, you, you obfuscate the problem by just throwing money around. And well, you, you, yeah, you, you throw away, you say it's, you know, instead of worrying about user freedom, we're going to create a little, we're going to create a walled garden with some rules that everybody can play inside of that walled garden, which means also you can never leave the walled garden. That's right. So that's an important, that's an important thing here. So if I have a, a music, if I've got some video with some music behind it, I can have it on YouTube, but if I take that video off of YouTube and put it and I host it on my own website, well, that's not going to work. Uh, that means that I'm leaving the YouTube, as you call it, walled garden, 
and now I'm subject to take down and all the same problems. And what that what that does is just incentivize people to stay on YouTube out of um, fear or practical, you know, practical sort of practical fear. Let's call it right that you can't leave because if you did, you'd have to you'd be shut down or sued. Right. So we've highly centralized our culture. We found a new gatekeeper for it, though. Yeah, and it's friendlier than the previous gatekeepers because the previous gatekeepers would just shut it down. So YouTube has has negotiated this this alternative, and in some ways it can feel very free. It, it feels like you're not being encumbered by the process, but in fact you are. Right. So I think that I think that in maybe what we're getting to is that free culture advocates were somewhat blindsided by how suave the proprietary world got about the tactics that they took. Well, what, and what they did was they took our tactics and our ideas and uh, our ideas about communicating with the artists. They took our ideas about separating out payment. They took our ideas about they, – they, they took our idea about – wanting to be able to remix and create new works and they found ways of culturally separating out that from the payment system so it was invisible to most people but it's not invisible to youtube creators or people that that really make their living they are very well aware of these these problems and youtube in particular also has a a, a catalog of music that's YouTube safe music. They encourage their creators to use, but you can't leave YouTube, right? It it can't leave YouTube. You can't take that same music and put it on another on another video service. Right. And what happens if YouTube goes down some way, a day? Do we lose all of our cultural heritage that was stored on YouTube? Well, that's a great question and it it, it reminds me of uh, a Jason Scott talk uh, that that is about this and the website GeoCities, which at one time was a huge part of the web and is now yeah. gone. And that's right. When we have these central sites, they will eventually go away. And with that, Why host our your history. own blog? You can just post it on Medium. Uh, you know, it, it'll survive just the same way GeoCities did. Right. Or uh, I remember, I mean – People, people are talking about Facebook and, and Twitter, and we, we now have an alternative. I remember LiveJournal, and LiveJournal was already an improvement over other site systems at the time because you could technically run your own LiveJournal instance, although most people didn't do that. Um, but, but yeah, we, we have gone through this many times, and I think self-hosting – I believe that self-hosting is, is where the free software community needs to start putting some of its focus. I, I think that and mobile and what I'm going to call not just mobile computing in the sense of phones, but, but what I talked about earlier about synchronizing your, your information across devices, self-hosting yeah. and, and again, I wish I had a better term for it, but, but this, this idea of synchronizing, those are the two areas where I feel that we as a community need to start putting our focus or we are just going to lose completely. And making it easy, right? Like, because it's not easy to self-host stuff right now. No, it's it, a it, lot of work. It, it, it is, and there are projects that would do make it easier. Um, but Which we will probably cover in future. We, episodes. we absolutely should. I'm, but but they're not perfect. None of them are. None of them are 
are currently something that I could recommend to a non-technical friend. I couldn't just say, hey, right. go ahead and, and do this a turnkey solution. And I'll tell you that I even have friends who they would – they wouldn't even do it if they could because the the proprietary guys have have sold them on advantages like, oh, well, we've got the cloud and backups and all this other stuff. But we're moving away from free culture. We should stick on free culture. Um, yeah. Which is, I, yeah. I have a I have a, a I have something that I do want to cover before we wrap up this episode. Okay. Um, actually, I have two points. Uh, let me and they're both kind of. Well, they may or may not be related. I'm going to throw them both out there and then let you choose which one you think is more important to cover first. So one of them is, why aren't there enough high-quality free cultural projects? Like, we see a lot of high-quality free software projects that, in general, the world, I think, recognizes that there's a lot of high-quality free software in that almost everybody uses free software every day, whether they realize it or not. But that's not the case with free culture, with certain exceptions like Wikipedia. And the second question is, um, and it may or may not be related, I'll be interested to hear if you think it is, why don't we see free culture developed in a distributed fashion the way that we see happen with free software? So that's – boy, we're going to go a little bit meta. You, do, you consider, do you consider Wikipedia culture? Or do you consider it a functional? Well, that's an interesting question. So, like, it's not, it's, it is culture, but it's kind of more of a data e culture than a creative e culture, right? Yeah, exactly. So it lends itself well in a, in to to collaboration in the same way that software lends itself well to collaboration. There's an objective. Uh, there's some objective data. There's uh, editing that can be done that's that's uh, about style. I, and I, it's in plain text, and it uses tools that look like free software tools, and, right? And not only You've that, got diffs. Yeah. I, I also don't know how connected you are with the Wikipedia culture. Um, I, I don't. I don't. I was at one time somewhat on the periphery because of my involvement with OpenStreetMap, and also because I was hanging out with the Wikipedia guys in New York. So I, I right. had some exposure, and I don't know how much I don't know how much that applies to you. I I don't have as much as I should, but we know people who do. So we know Evan Pedromo, who actually did tons of federated social web stuff, and, and he's now working at the Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, uh, and so we should po- probably have him on. And Greg Grossmeyer, uh, likewise, also a free culture person who uh, works at the Wikimedia Foundation. We should probably have on some of those people to talk about these things on a future episode. Yeah. And I mean, we could also have people from my days in, in open street map and some of those people also work at Wikimedia. So, um, so I don't think of, I don't think of Wikim, Wikipedia as a free culture work. Um, it's not creative free culture. No, it's not. It's, so let's, so let's think of, so, but when I think about creative, sorry, when I think about free culture, I'm thinking about um, books and music and and movies, right? Those are the big three, I guess. In all, in our, well, and video games. But we but we've talked right. a little bit about video, video games. game assets at least, and and yeah. like and uh, we should we should have a separate episode episode about that. So let's talk let's let's talk about let's talk about books and let's talk about um let's talk about music because those are the ones we're going to find the most of. There aren't very many 
fully free films. Well, some of our best example, well, in video, some of our best examples in this space actually come from the Blender community. But they're not um, full length films. They're not, but they are solid quality works. Yeah, I, I, I hear you and I agree with you, but I'm going to, I don't, I, I think we're picking nits a little bit, but when I think about a movie, I'm not talking about a five minute short. I'm thinking about a full length feature film. Okay. I think there's good, so that, I think there's good reasons to um, take a lot of lessons from that space, but why don't we make that argument as we go? Okay. So let's talk about, let's just talk about Let's start with books. I think books are the best because they require only one person to write. You only need one person to write a book. And that, and so I'm talking about a fiction book. So you don't have a lot of fiction in the, uh, in the, that, that is free culture. Um, and then, well, okay. So talk you to actually me. do on some of these independent publisher sites. That's free culture. Uh, so we're not talking about NC. Right, so none of Cory Doctorow's work, and I'm by the way, I like Cory Doctorow's books, uh, and I, you know, would love to be able to promote him as a free culture artist. I do not agree with him that his works are free, um, but right. but because so they're because they're I think insane. that there may be, I, I well, I could be wrong. I should double check. I think Smashwords may have quite a bit, but I could actually be wrong. I haven't actually looked at it in detail, um, so I should shut up. So we should, you know. I will tell you, um, I, I've told, we, we've talked about this outside the, the podcast. I started a project a couple of years ago, and the idea was that I wanted to make a repository of free works, only free works, so no stuff with NC or ND. And it was going to be a, a website with a piece of software that was going to work a lot like um, um, an app store or a web store. And you'd be able to say, oh, this is this is a piece of music I like, and this is a book I like, and I'm going to download this to this device. And then when you would go on to your next device, you would sign in, and it would say, oh, here are the, here are the, the things you liked on this other one, and it would just kind of sync it up for you in the background, and you wouldn't have to think about it. And I thought, oh, wouldn't, won't this be clever? And it'll be just like um, – It'll be just like the big proprietary guys. It'll just be like iTunes and Amazon, but but it'll be totally free, and everyone will start wanting to put their stuff on this. All I need is a good seed amount of you know uh, of of good cultural works, and then that will just spur everything. And outside of Project Gutenberg, which has public domain works. Which is awesome. Which right? Yeah. But I was looking for for new for new works that were of high quality and were free culture, and I found a lot of technical manuals and textbooks, which are great. But I was looking for fiction, and I just didn't find very much. And maybe I was yeah. looking in the wrong spots, and I was also looking well, for music, and I and I didn't find very much. I mean, yeah. So I think you're right that there's there's not nearly as much. Uh, you're definitely right that there's there's not nearly as much as we'd like, and I think music has more than uh than than probably than literature books do yeah uh, than literature, and I think definitely more music that's free that's of high quality than uh video. 
And um, I didn't find a lot. I mean, and again, maybe I wasn't searching hard enough, but everything with, with one exception. So the band that I, a band that I love is Lorenzo's music and their stuff is totally free. Um, and I found a lot of stuff that was kind of garage band, uh, you know, I'm going to make some electronic music on my computer and it was cute and, but it wasn't, but it wasn't, um, especially great or creative or, or new. Um, it wasn't stuff that I would want to curate on a, on a site. Um, and so, and I kept looking and I went into the, you know, the free music archive and I went on to creative commons and CC mixer and Gemendo and others, but they were all, um, NC or they were all non-commercial use, at least not all, but, but for a vast majority were non-commercial and some were non-derivis. And I just went, Oh, this is, this is pretty terrible. And I, I ended up not, not continuing with the project for, simply because I just didn't have the resources to keep scouring the internet. And, and I didn't feel like, I felt like I needed at least a hundred albums or a hundred books to start. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree where it's a, but, but I, and, and would you agree that we don't feel the same issue is the case in software? No software. We have tons of thousands of programs. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I mean, in that sense, it's kind of weird. Stallman's distinction does hold up as in terms of what ended up being successful if not as in terms of principles. Like, I don't agree with it in principles, but when it comes to, like, and you could say Wikipedia is very successful, but it is a functional work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, and and it turns out that's the area where Stallman was right was not actually what he said about um, about it being important. In I actually think that it is very important in the cultural space, but in the categories that they gave turn out to be true in terms of success. Yeah. And I would say that, 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 that is at least as true because of our failure as a community thus far to provide alternative means of funding rather than, uh, uh, rather than some kind of intrinsic uh, aspect of the work itself. What I mean by that is many people who are doing free software are doing it and they are paid either directly now for writing free software or they are indirectly subsidizing their free software because it's related to some work that they're doing and they're writing a library because it's solving a problem and they're maybe they're game developers as you say and right so they're they're contributing to blender because it will help them produce an asset that they need for a project um, and that's great, but we don't have mechanisms like that. The only thing we have is the grant process for artists and, you know, government or nonprofit grants. And thus far, those grants have not required that the works be free. And if that, changed, which is funny, right? Right. Yeah, I agree. Like, it should be, it should be, Hey, the taxpayers are paying for this. Therefore the work must be free. Yeah. I, so I also so I think you were somewhat dismissive of the so this is kind of changing topics and I I agree with everything you just said but uh getting into the how this stuff is developed um I actually do want to highlight so 
you know, if you look at the Blender open movie stuff, I think there's some interesting stuff to look at about that. Is that, um, A, uh, it's actually an interesting example of a free software project being driven by free culture, right? So the Blender projects tend to actually get features in accordance to what the movies that are being produced need. B, um, the Blender open movie projects are actually massively successful uh, in terms of getting a viewership, right? So they might not be full feature length movies, but lots of people watch them, uh, like in the millions. Mm -hmm. And that's not true of many other free culture works. Um, So that's certainly notable, it feels to me. Uh, In C, you do get the source code, which, as we mentioned earlier, even the copy left of free culture and the Creative Commons, you know, attribution share alike does not require source code. But, and it's done in a very throw code over the wall style development where the source code comes out after the movie's been produced. But in the Blender Open Movie projects, they have released the source code in the sense of the Blender files and the GIMP files and the Krita files and stuff like that to produce a movie. Um, they pr- release them in the same way that you can study, use, modify, and even compile the movie yourself. If so you here's want my question to you as someone who is clearly into that community. How often yep. are those assets used in the way you're describing? Uh, not enough. They are, I think, studied more than they are uh, reused. Though they are reused sometimes. So I do... I do see the assets reused sometimes, but what's kind of disappointing in some ways is that uh, the most common way that you see the Blender Open Movie stuff getting reused is companies showing them in their product ads because they legally can. Um, and in that, I, I do find that to be kind of a bit of a bummer that we haven't seen the reuse of that source code. Now, I have learned a lot by opening and modifying those files, actually. Um, A lot of my Blender skills came from investigating and studying those things. But I'll admit, you don't see much stuff produced after the fact. There is some, but it's very small of stuff that's reusing the assets from those Because my question really is, um, it's not a sort of admonishment of the, the reuse as much as it is that coming back to the top of the show, when we talked about the distinction between in the licenses that that are for software that require source code and the, the licenses for culture that do not, uh, we, we mentioned that the, the GPL V3 talks about, I can't remember the exact term, but I'm, I think it was something along the lines of preferred, uh, preferred format, right? Is that, or prefer, preferred something? Yeah. Preferred form preferred of for form modification. Preferred form for modification, right. Thank you. Well, if, if the works that are not, if the works are not being used in that way, meaning if people are not taking the Blender source files of the objects, the assets, and reusing them directly, then I wonder if the preferred form is that source code in the cultural space. I don't know. I do know that a lot of that ever since Blender moved to the Blender Cloud thing that the which is the way that they're they're funding things today, the the Blender Institute that 
it does seem like there's a lot of assets that are uploaded to there that people are copying and reusing for their own mm-hmm. work. So it's kind of like the um, Unity assets engine where you can just download. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, so it's seeing success there and then being kind of an asset repository. But what I'm not seeing success in, so this is kind of where I wanted to get to. Um, and this actually, by the way, and, and probably we should do a whole episode about Liberated Pixel Cup, but this was actually the thesis between, behind Liberated Pixel Cup, which was the project that I kind of got away with doing when I was tech lead in the last year I was at Creative Commons, uh, um, which was kind of a big experiment um, about the interaction of free software and free culture. And the thesis there was we don't see much um, as in terms of uh, um, free culture that is kind of built in the way that we see free software built in a distributed way. Um, and we don't see it being reused as much. Now, there is a site called Open Game Art that we work with to do Liberated Pixel Cup, and they had a lot of assets on there. But what you would notice is that a lot of those assets were incompatible with each other stylistically. So if you tried to make a game using a bunch of them, what you'd end up with was this incompatible kind of uh, mosaic. A visually incompatible uh, like hodge, open game art. Visually incompatible assets that look like kind of like you cut and pasted them out of a newspaper, like a bunch of pictures out of there. And like it really did not look very appealing to do that. So what Liberated Pixel Cup did was we created, we hired some artists, uh, and it was a company, it was a, it was, so it was Creative Commons, the Free Software Foundation, and Mozilla that worked on this. Uh, um, and we raised some money to pay some artists. Uh, the artists uh, created a, um, some initial assets in the style guide. And then we also ran two contests, one to extend this, uh, to make new assets using that style guide, and then a contest to use... Um, to make games that were free software games using those assets. Uh, it was very successful in terms of number of entries. We got 50 in each category, about a hundred games and, and contributions at each, which was beyond what we expected or were prepared to judge. Uh, but what's more interesting to me is that people are still making assets today about um, six years later uh, that are still compatible with the look and feel of um the 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 stuff that we laid out and it's mainly because of that style guide which was influenced by the tango icon style guide by the so, way so would you um, say that this is similar to and i don't i don't know the answer to this but when i think about a, a, a community of remixers i think about the game modding community which is a large group that we don't really interact much with, right? But people that are well, people that are modding games and putting new art and new skins yeah. and all of that. So they already have they already have a reference of how the things should look, right? Which is the original mm-hmm. game, right? And what what Liberty Pixel Kip, Cup did was that it created another reference for this thing that said, "Okay, here's the initial assets." And we also even specified, here's how you actually make your art look like it's going to fit, right? And so in the modding communities, they actually um, also have a reference, which is just all the stuff that was released from the original thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think it is similar in that regard. Um, I also think, um, 
but I also I don't know. I'm also so I'm I'm actually surprised that we're still seeing things like that as coming out for today. And in that sense, I see it to be a big success. There's other ways in which I'd say it's not a success, and I I'll reserve that for a future. Well, episode, then let me but, ask you one question. We should probably start wrapping up. But but as someone who's working on Sprightly, which we should talk about it in some future episode, which I know we will because it's a huge part of of your life, which is a, a game. Uh, but it's is it going? It's my understanding is it's going to be text based, at least what you produce, right? Uh, yeah, the initial version will be text based, but um, you may be hinting at like why wouldn't I use something like that, right? Well, no, actually, no. My question is, are you going to put out a style guide for for people that want to produce software against your system? Style guide of what? Oh, that's interesting. So, um, so maybe you know, um. Uh, quite possibly. Uh, I let's not get into that into detail, and instead I'll pivot to saying uh, what's interesting though is that we actually that's a thing that we do for source code is that we have style guides, which you know the free culture community generally doesn't when working on software, right? And the the way the Blender community got got around it for the Blender Open Movie Project is they have. Um, a lead artist who's running a specific project, right? Um, but if you want to have a more distributed thing that doesn't have this lead artist kind of watching over the thing, then you need a style guide. And source code, um, we both have style guides that get written up, and also we have the conventions of our code that constrain it so that you know you know what the indentation shape is going to look like, you know, blah blah blah. And a lot of the effort that ends up happening on code review and free software projects is making sure that code meshes with the rest of the project. And one question I have is, why don't we see massively distributed um, free culture projects that have that same level of attention to uh, well, I, kind see, of uh, again, um, I, I coherence? Don't, I guess I question this thesis. So here, And here's what I mean. If we look at the largest free software projects, you are right that they have many contributors. So if we look at something like um, LibreOffice, lots of contributors. But there's a majority of free software that has a very small number of contributors. That's true. And so you're now comparing a very large set where, sorry, uh, so with free culture, as we've talked about, there's very few pieces of free culture, right? There's, there's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to make up a number. Let's say there's a thousand pieces of, of free culture, um, uh, literary works. I'm just making up that, that this number, right? But we have thousands and thousands of free software projects, and only a few of them have have lots of contributors working in a distributed fashion. Most of them have maybe three or four contributors or maybe even one. So we can't really do a comparison right now because, because the, the numbers are so different and maybe statistically they're actually the same. Yeah. Well, so our sample size is is too small. I, I I agree that the sample sizes are very small. And I think partly what you're saying is maybe these patterns would come out if we were taking free culture more seriously in the first place. If we had a lot more free culture or if free culture had um, the the same economic incentives 
as free software. And you know, I'm I'm really lazy. I haven't I haven't I have a draft in 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 one of my folders in my computer where I say I I, I wanted to write about funding of free software and how I think funding of free software is is broken in our community, but. This this discussion is making me think that the funding of free culture is totally broken, right? So it's more broken. Than it free is more software. broken than free software. Uh, grants that go to artists should require that the work be be under a free license, and right. it, I think if we saw that, then what 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 would happen is that the projects that that would have these artistic. So first of all. Uh, Literature doesn't really usually require very, very many contributors, right? You have you have your writer, and you have an editor, and maybe a, maybe two editors, right? That's that's usually all you need, and maybe a formatter, but you don't need that many people to write a, a, a literary a work of fiction. Um, a, a music, a, a piece of music, you might have an artist or two. You're going to need someone to edit it. Could be the same person. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's someone else to produce it, right? So you do have. You, you're going to see more of that when you're talking about a film. You need yet more people, right? Now you need, um, especially if it's a, because uh, we've only talked about live action. Sorry, we've talked about animated things with Blender, but there could also be live action. So now you have actors, you have a director, you have a producer. Um, you have a lot more that will go into a film, and so you have a lot more people by necessity. In terms of being distributed, that's an interesting question. But just in terms of the mediums themselves, you tend to have less people for the kinds of things that we have that we have free culture for right now. Right. Yeah. So um, let's put it this way: you and I both might agree. That free culture, as in like the more serious definition of free culture, as in terms of like abiding by principles definition of pre- free culture, still doesn't have enough serious works behind yep. it. And maybe we could see if we could figure out in the process of figuring out how to make that happen, we might be able to figure out a lot of these other things. I think with that, let's wrap it up. And thank our audience yep. for being here. And yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Yep. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joth which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.